Philippians 2. Like, I was trying to figure out how I was going to break up Philippians 2 and, and teach it. Um, because, you know, I could, I could be here for a while with, with Philippians 2. And, and all of the great, um, great things that we find in it. And, and the reason that it's such a, a pivotal chapter, the reason that it's, it's so important, is because uh, many of the foundations uh, of the pattern and um, the proclamation and the pattern of the gospel are found in Philippians 2. We talked uh, last week and in the previous week about the gospel not just being something that we, we hear once and we receive, but rather it's something that is repeated often to the church. It's something that we are to, to speak to each other um, a lot. And the, and the reason being, Paul tells us in Philippians 1, is that it's, it's part for proclamation, but then secondly, it gives us uh, a pattern and model for living. And Paul's going to break it down more specifically in uh, in chapter two uh, through the use of uh, a uh, it's a hymn essentially that that uh, I'll explain a little bit more next week on that. But it's a hymn essentially that has been written kind of around uh, the person and work of Christ, and that happens in uh, basically verses uh, six through eleven. But before we get to that, he's going to, he's going, he's going to use that as an example of what he's charging the Philippians with and he, what he's charging all Christians with. Although he's writing to uh, the Philippian church to address their issues of persecution, um, oppression that they're facing from the world, he's also writing uh, to, to speak to their situation of having unity. And it doesn't just, in, in unity there, as we've seen, isn't just uh, something that is an absence of conflict. He's, he's speaking of unity in a greater way. In the, in the previous uh, verse that we looked at in, uh, last week in verse 27, he charges them that they would, they would have a manner worthy of life, worthy of the gospel. Um, but then they would stand firm in one spirit of one mind. So he's not just looking for, uh, hey, you guys are all nice and friends, and there's no you know, arguments, and there's no sort of conflict. He's looking for something greater. And this is a, a message to the church and something that um, has been extremely challenging for me as I've looked at this passage. This, is, uh, it's, this one has been extremely humbling this week to kind of come to it and, and feel like in past weeks, like, okay, like I, I feel like there's something of, of that going on in my life, what I'm going to talk about. But what we're going to talk about this morning, the idea of unity, it's, it's a whole different level of relationship. And uh, Paul's going to lay the groundwork for what he'll speak of as Christ as the ultimate example of humility and, and unity and relationship. But this is something that if the church operated in obedience to what we were going to talk about today, it would be radical. It would, it would completely change the game. And so it's a little bit scary to kind of approach this passage this morning because as we hear the word of God, we have a responsibility not to only be uh, hearers, but to be doers. So I approach this with much humility and a little bit of feeling freaked out about how I'm going to apply this and what that looks, because it it really uh, it really narrows and and, and point and pinpoints 
the life of, of discipleship and, and the idea of walking with Christ and walking uh, together. As we said, our, our themes, you know, it's uh, the gospel of Christ, the community in Christ, and uh, the, well, it's the gospel of Christ, community in Christ, and joy in Christ. That's what the middle one is, joy in Christ. Uh, so as, as we kind of approach those things, the, the claim that the gospel lays on our life is it's much more total than I'm sure every, every one of us is comfortable with, as I kind of discovered as, we, uh, as I looked into this and prayed through it and stuff. So uh, I'm excited to get to it, but let's see what the Lord says to us this morning. So he starts off in... Uh, let's roll into it actually a little bit from uh, from verse 27 since we kind of started there. Paul starts off in one uh, chapter 1 verse 27. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy being, by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So Paul is writing now to the Philippians to kind of lead them into unity a little bit more. He's addressed first their situation of persecution and oppression uh, in the end of uh, kind of 27 through 30, dealing with, uh, you know, their unity in the gospel and finding comfort in the gospel and comfort in community. And he'll kind of speak to that a little bit more this morning. He flows in in verse 1 uh, by kind of urging the believers to endure suffering well. They're experiencing this persecution and oppression outside the church, and when they, do, when they endure suffering well, when they do it together, uh, they, will be, uh, they, will, they will stand a greater chance. They will have greater unity. It will heal division caused by the church. And one of the great things about outside conflict, when you have internal conflict, it allows you to kind of get rid of that internal conflict real quickly. It allows you to, to, to make up your mind about, you know, your motives and your intentions. One, one of the things that uh, is the result of, uh, in, our, in America's history, is during wartime, uh, there, the nation has historically always kind of pulled together. When, when uh, you know, in World War One and World War Two, what would happen is as as the troops went out to fight in war, those back home, the the party lines would often fade away as everyone rationed, uh, you know, they rationed metal and and. Uh, 
uh, all sorts of goods that would be saved for ammunition and for machinery and food for the troops. They would, they would go about things a different way, and it would bring great unity to a nation that would be normally politically divided. But since we are American together, the, the way that the nation would pull together, it would, just, it would kind of gloss over all those things. And, and you can kind of trace that out through, and when you look at, uh, you know, the wartime efforts that, that have uh, historically taken place. Now here, Paul's kind of using that also as a little bit of leverage. He's saying, you have this internal division, you have this internal uh, lack of focus. Some of it is actually, you know, situational, person-to-person division. Some of it is just you guys are kind of you're, you have, you're self-interested. You're thinking in different directions. But Paul's saying that this oppression, this persecution that you're facing, it should drive you to a greater internal unity, to, to, to figure out what is your mission, what's your purpose, why are you here, what are you doing with your life? And, and so he kind of speaks to that uh, starting in verse 1. He says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. So he starts off with this first statement. He, he gives us the motivation here for seeking unity in the church with uh, four kind of statements, four if statements. And, and, and when he communicates that, he says, if there's any encouragement of Christ, if there is any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, if there's any affection and sympathy. When he communicates using that word if, he's not saying like speculatively if, if these things happen to be there. He's using that word to, to, to communicate a certainty, a reality. He's saying because there is encouragement in Christ, because there is comfort in his love, you should have this unity. And so he lists out these four kind of considerations that should bring believers together. It should bring the church together in unity. This community, it should bring them together. He, he's essentially saying, uh, you know, because there's so much encouragement in Christ, because his love has such an effect upon us, because it, it has, he has saved us with his love, because the Holy Spirit brings us together with, with fellowship and unity in Christ, being a part of the members of his family, because he has demonstrated his, his sympathy and his affection upon you, you know, you should be able to then have those characteristics up, upon yourselves and have unity together. And so he, he's reminding them that these things are not ifs, but they are in fact realities. The first one that he talks about there is if there is any encouragement in Christ. Now that word encouragement can also be translated comfort. If there's any comfort in Christ... It is essentially kind of what he's saying. And comfort in Christ or, or this encouragement in Christ can flow from one member to another. When, when you are assured of Christ's uh, saving work in your life and you exhort another of how they have, have uh, been saved and, and you experience the comfort of Christ, uh, you know, although Christ experienced great suffering, you also have been saved because of that. And now you experiencing great suffering uh, will also be saved as a result. If Paul has just kind of been speaking about this in, in uh, verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 29. He says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. So it's given as a, a gift. We said that granted there, it's, it's, a, it's a gracious giving. 
You've been given this graciously, not only to believe in him, but also that you might suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw that I have and now hear that I still have. And so he says, uh, the comfort for those who suffer is the knowledge uh, that suffering is a gift granted to them. And that suffering is on behalf of Christ. You suffer with Christ. It, it, Paul experienced this, and he's been kind of trying to communicate this all throughout the book of Philippians. Earlier in uh, chapter 1, he speaks of his chains, uh, that they're gospel tools. He, he speaks that he's comforted in his chains, even though he's facing death. But the comfort that he finds is in his relationship to Christ. Christ suffered for him. He is also in, uh, joining in Christ's suffering. And Paul's greatest joy, the greatest uh, desire of his heart was Jesus. In, verse, uh, in chapter 1, verse 21, he says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So Paul's, Paul's outlook, his mindset was completely outward. He, he was looking both at the prospect of living that he would bear, uh, he would he would labor and bear good fruit, and then the possibility of dying, and then having union with Christ, and also representing Christ faithfully through his death. In verse uh, twenty-seven of chapter one, Paul reminds them of their unity together, and it, that it provides comfort in suffering. We kind of just talked about that. He says, "You guys are standing firm in one spirit when you when you come together and you have that that unity there uh, when you have." When you're brought together, when you have your, your mind completely on the goal of representing Christ and joy in Christ, you're going to find great comfort there as there's this strength in numbers, as you are members of the household of faith together. And so those who suffer for faith in Christ are strengthened uh, in the process of knowing that they will be uh, essentially vindicated before God because their suffering is similar in the way that Christ suffered. He suffered innocently. Christ was, uh, you know, he faced a Roman cross. He was killed, although he was innocent, but yet God raised him from the dead. And so these Christians can take comfort knowing that they are in Christ. They can have encouragement in Christ knowing that as Christ was raised from the dead, though he suffered innocently, so they who have placed their faith in Christ will also not end with, uh, you know, a last death, but they will be raised again with Christ. Paul speaks similarly regarding suffering and comfort. Flip over with me uh, to 2 Corinthians 1. I was reading through 2 Corinthians this week, and uh, there's so much good stuff in 2 Corinthians. I was blown away. But uh, chapter 1 is particularly uh, impactful. In 2 Corinthians 1, Paul speaks similarly here. In verse 5, he says, For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ uh, we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. So he's essentially echoing what he's kind of said in verse 30 of chapter 1 in Philippians. Uh, in verse 7, he says, Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. Now look a couple of verses earlier and look at what Paul says. In verse 3, he starts off, 
you know, with this introduction to the book here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. God is the God of all comfort. Verse 4, who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So Paul says, God is the God of all comfort. He comforts us in our affliction so that we might be able to comfort others. So this encouragement in Christ takes place in the context of community. And that's what Paul's doing here in Philippians. He's comforting with the comfort that he has been comforted with. He's applying what he's speaking to the Philippians here, or to the, to the Corinthians. He is taking the comfort that the Lord has given him in his uh, perspective of living for Christ or dying and having union with Christ, and he's, he's pushing the, that upon the Philippians and sharing that with them and encouraging them that, that you have, have encouragement that you are in Christ. He's motivating them, essentially, uh, to be united as a result of this comfort in Christ only experiencing or only uh, appearing uh, in the community of Christ. So he's saying he, there's, this, there's this great opportunity for you guys to have this community, this, this final unity together around Christ, and I'm going to motivate that to you by telling you that you can have comfort through that. Now, he goes on with his next, uh, the second clause. He says, if there is any comfort from love. Now, uh, one of the other translations kind of gives us a little bit more insight to it, and it, there's a... Uh, adds a pronoun there to it and the, the essentially it would say if there's any comfort not just from love but from his love it's speaking of christ's love that that word there uh gives us uh, a little bit of, of direction there and where we're headed with this so if there's any comfort from his love now of course we know that there is comfort from christ's love it, it all all love is is from him, it, it is uh, his character, it's his attributes. God is love, First uh, John 4. And so, Christ's love in the community here is going, it gives comfort, um, is going to encourage them, just as uh, there's, they can receive encouragement from their brothers and sisters. Also, that love working out in the community will, uh, they'll experience Jesus' love through the community. And what he's essentially saying here is that love, although he's saying it's Christ's love, he's calling the community to have that love. He, he's saying, church, you guys need to be the ones manifesting this love. And it's not your own love because our own love is selfish love. It's self-seeking love. But we need to have Christ's love. And so he's reminding them that this love that they must have belongs to Christ. And it's rooted... Uh, it, it, Paul gives us uh, an example, really, of it. And if you look back in Philippians 1, verse 8, he, he says there, For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ. That's what he's talking about. He's got this, this great anguish, this great affection for them. He's like, I love you guys, not with my own love, but with the love that Christ has, has placed in my heart because you are valuable to him. He loves you. He wants to, to uh, see you grow and know him more. He wants to have greater intimacy with you. And he loves you with the affection, uh, or, or he loves the Philippians with the affection of Christ. And essentially, that's what he's calling us to here when he says that we should... Um, you know, we should demonstrate this comfort or this, this love in the community. Paul has, has expressed that love in verse 1 
uh, or sorry, in verse 8 of chapter 1. In verse 9 of chapter 1, he prays that their love may abound more and more. So that's essentially what he's wanting to see happen here again. He's kind of repeating himself. Uh, later, he speaks to those who have, who have operated correctly out of love. In verse 16 of chapter 1, he says, the latter do it out of love. That, you know, he commends their love, that they are, their motive is not selfish ambition, but their motive is love. So there's some of this existing in the community. And he's saying, you guys need to come together for the purpose of Christ's love being manifested among you. And he's reminding the church of the comfort from love because he's going to call them to love, uh, you know, just in the, in the next verse. And he wants them to have the same love for one another. So he's kind of laying his framework here. Uh, the third clause that he says is that we should, if there's any participation in the spirit. Now, this is a huge one. Any participation in the Spirit. This is something that ought to exist among believers. The word there is koinonia. It's the word that's commonly used for fellowship. Uh, we talked about this a little bit earlier in uh, chapter 1, in verse 5. Paul says there, because of your partnership in, in the gospel. So the word partnership there is the word koinonia. It's this partnership in the gospel and from the first day until now. And Paul says that he's thankful for that, that koinonia that they have there. Now, well, essentially what he's speaking there is they have a, a, a shared um, mutual interest. They have a, a common uh, idea. And there's something that they're mutually interested in. They share in it. Um, oftentimes in the, the word koinonia would be also used in, uh, to talk about partnerships where uh, partnerships were brought together one person was maybe providing the capital and the other person was providing the workforce to create this business partnership. So both parties would bring something together to it. In verse 5, Paul's talking about a partnership that is established because of the gospel, not because any party has brought anything, but because there's the common and mutual interest there is that they are members of the family of God because the gospel, uh, Christ has saved them and the gospel brings them together. Now, here, it's a little bit different. Paul, it's, it's more than just uh, that. He talks about it being participation in the Spirit. It's not just partnership. It's not just we're in the same family. Now, it's participation in the Spirit. And to make his point here, Paul kind of uses a little bit of a different nuance in, in his word. The word that, he, uh, the, the emphasis that he uses here is one that is focused upon common ownership. Not just partnership. Koinonia would also be used in, in, the, in the role of common ownership of something. Uh, it, it would not only, in, uh, historically, could not only refer to, uh, you know, associations for joint ventures or business partnerships, but also when, some, uh, when, when people would come into an inheritance that they would own together. Now, Common possession in those times did not entitle each heir to their own piece of the property. So in our day and age, the way that, the way that we would, you know, kind of go about it, usually it's, it's like, okay, somebody, a family inherits something, maybe a couple brothers inherit a plot of land. And essentially it's like, okay, well, like you get this half and you get this half. And if you want to sell off your 12 acres and you want to sell off your 12 acres and you want to sell off your 12 acres, you, you get 12 because there's 36 and that's all you get. You can do whatever you want with it. Um, you have that ability. But 
Common possession did not entitle the heir to do whatever they wanted with the property. Each heir was part owner of the whole property, not a piece of the property. Each heir was, uh, was, was a full owner of, or, or, or a part owner of the full property. There was no dividing it up. Now, the reasons that we divide it up is because, like, we have our own things that we want to do with it, right? Someone wants to, like, sell it and be like, I don't want to manage the land. I want to be done with it. Boom. Oh, I, I want to use it because it's, like, valuable to my family. And, you know, it's like there's history and nostalgia here. I want to take that. I want to develop it and use it. And, you know, I want to have my kids come and plant, like, that sort of thing. You know, and then it's like, okay, well, I want to build apartments on my plot of the land. The way that these things were structured in this koinonia did not allow for that. Each member of this partnership, of, of this participation, was not simply uh, owning a piece of the property, but a whole. Now, believers in Christ are heirs to the Holy Spirit, and we have common possession of the Holy Spirit. We are members of the family of God. We don't just get, oh, here's my piece of the Holy Spirit. Here's my piece of the body of Christ, and I'm going to do whatever I want with it. Like, here's how much work I want to put into it, and so that's good enough. We are all common heirs of the same thing. So everybody can't do what you want with it. There's a common goal, and Paul will kind of speak to that. What Paul's doing here when he says that, when, he, when he's making this point that there's in any participation of, in the Spirit, he's telling the church, both the Philippians and our church, he's telling the church that the emphasis here in participation in the Spirit is upon the entire community. You don't get to read this in an individualistic way, like, well, let me determine how much I want to participate in the Spirit. Let me determine what you know, what level of interest that I have in that. He's he's intentionally avoiding this individual experience. He's he's emphasizing the entire community for a purpose here. He'll kind of get to that in a second. Verse, uh, sorry, verse one still. His fourth clause there is if there's any affection and sympathy. So Paul has this great affection for his friends as the result of experiencing Christ's affection for him. Uh, you know, Christ's love flowing and the sympathy that Christ had upon him uh, that we, we see demonstrated in uh, verses 6 through 11. We also see it demonstrated in Romans 5, 8, when God demonstrated his love towards us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. He, he saw our need. He saw that we had no hope and had compassion and affection and sympathy for us and came and demonstrated his love through the work of the cross. And Paul is reminding them here about how they have been saved by Christ, how Paul has demonstrated that affection and sympathy towards them. Now, he's going to call the community to demonstrate that affection and sympathy toward one another. And so what he's essentially doing here is also pushing them towards unity by saying, if I have demonstrated this for you, if we've been partners in the gospel, if we've had this koinonia fellowship before, We should get back to that because of what Christ has done for us and how I've demonstrated it to you. It has happened before and it must happen again. And so he goes on in verse 2 now. um, 
to kind of address this a little bit more. Now, the point we said of Paul's letter to the Philippians was to bring unity. It was to bring uh, deeper relationships and friendships with the Philippians. And he's going to address that um, in, in verse 2. He starts off, verse 2, by saying, Complete my joy. Now, Paul's joy in the Philippians was obviously experiencing some difficulty. There was some disunity among them, and that brought, you know, some uh, distress there. It diminished his joy. So Paul's saying, you know, if, if, if you guys can have unity, if you guys can come together for, to be partners in the gospel, to be partakers of grace again, if you can participate in the Spirit, if you can be of one mind, of one spirit together again, that will complete my joy. Because his joy is Christ. He wants to see Christ exalted. He wants to see Christ, you know, Christ's name further. He wants to see the gospel advance. And so he's telling them, you guys can complete my joy. Here's how to do it. He says that you should be of the same mind. Now, friendships are fragile. Relationships are fragile. It's easy to be divided by pride, selfishness, preoccupation with things, personal interests. Paul is calling them to be of the same mind. Now, what he's saying here, the, the words that he uses there, it, it, it uh, contains the word think. Essentially, what he's saying is think the same thing. Well, he's calling his friends to think the same thing or be of the same mind. But when he's doing that, he's not saying that you guys have to think the same, th same thing about everything. He's not, he's not saying, you know, Every, you guys should all have the same opinion, and if you have a differing opinion, like, that's a problem. He's not saying that. What he's getting at here is that he's calling them to seek the same goal with the same mind, to have the same thinking and the same final goal. And he identifies this common goal uh, in, in verses 2 through 4, and he'll kind of uh, give us what being of the same mind means in this next phrase. He says, be of the same mind having the same love. Having the same love defines uh, what being of the same mind means. It's, you know, it's like, okay, we should think the same thing, but what should we think of? Like, what, what are we supposed to think about? Paul says that we should have the same love. Now, obviously, Paul is talking about our love for Christ. Our love for Christ, our love for one another, he's calling us to this uh, labor of love, essentially. Now, Christ's love was demonstrated, Paul will get to in, uh, in verse 7, by saying that this, this love was worked out by, uh, in Christ's example by him emptying himself and taking the form of a servant. And the, that's the model for the love that we should have for one another. And the only way that this unity is going to exist in the body, the only way that we're going to be able to think the same thing and have, be of, of the same mind, as Paul tells us to be, it's only going to be brought about uh, when, when we uh, have and have a shared, um, a shared desire to know Christ. We have a shared commitment to love as Christ loves. The only way that we're going to experience this, the reality of, of unity, being in the same mind, is when we look at Christ's example and say, okay, I need to love as Christ loves. So he tells us that we should have the same love um, as Christ. 
Uh, and then he says, uh, the next little phrase there, that we should be in full accord. It means uh, it's translated to be souls together, people living together in harmony. It's a, it's a harmonious living is essentially what he's getting at there. And he's, he's kind of echoing back to what he spoke in verse 28 where he talks about uh, being citizens together, that we should strive in, in one accord. We should strive in, in one faith, standing shoulder to shoulder, side by side. We should be in, in full, full accord together. We should be working together as good citizens of the heavenly city here on earth, executing out Christ's love in the community and, and having conduct worthy of the gospel. And so he's telling us that, that we need to have these things. And, and the unity of of the believers will allow them to work in one accord. When we have the same goal, the same, you know, when we think the same thing, when we have the same love as Christ had, when we know that we love him and we, in loving him, we see how he loved us. And then we go and we try to have that same love as Jesus had, then we will be in one accord and we will move forward together as one person. Paul spoke to this in the uh, letter to the uh, Corinthians in chapter 12. In verse 19, he says, If we were all a single member, where would the body be? Again, he's speaking to the individualistic nature versus the community nature. If we were all a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again to the feet, I have no need of you. But oftentimes, that's what we say to each other. Not necessarily in words, but in the way that we... Uh, omit each other from our lives. And it's like, I'm good. I'm good on my own. I have no need of you. Essentially, that's the way that we live. Uh, you know, I can think of specific instances where like I've thought like I could be involved or help that person or let them help or, you know, have a relationship and pursue that. But like, I'm good. It'd just be easier for me to do it on my own. Paul says we shouldn't be thinking that way. It doesn't create unity in the body of Christ. It creates individualistic, selfish, uh, self-seeking desires and pride. He'll, he'll kind of speak to that in a moment. So he says that we should be of one accord uh, or in full accord and of one mind. So we should be thinking that one thing. The, the divisions that are in the body, that self-seeking can be overcome when we think the same thing, we have a common goal, and we all pull in that direction. When we all work towards that goal together. But when we're occupied with our personal agendas and, you know, our, our own interests, and everyone's pulling in different directions, we're all trying to, to, you know, there's a goal, but everyone's kind of distracted, like, I'm doing my own thing, I'm busy right now, I gotta do this, you guys keep going, I'm doing my own thing. It, it creates disunity within the body. We have to be of one mind, pulling in the same direction. Now, when it talks about being of the same mind, he's, he's mentioned it a couple times in, in different ways. Being of the same mind and being of one mind. It means more than just being... Uh, you know, on the same page. It doesn't just mean like, yeah, we're, we're agreeable. Like, I don't really have any conflict or problems with you. It does mean that we're under the lordship of Christ. And again, I, I wish that we experienced this term in a more radical way than we do. 
because we don't live under like a monarch. We don't live in a way that um, we're not required to live under, you know, a, a kingly government. But when you would live under someone's lordship, it, it kind of speaks back to what Paul has, has been talking about uh, in the very beginning of the book, where he says he's a servant. He is a, a bond servant. He, his inter- he has no self-interests. Not only does, does he, is he interested in the will of his master, he's literally saying that he has no self-interests. He doesn't want to accomplish anything for his own personal desires. He only cares about doing what the master has called him to do. When we're all under the lordship of Christ, when we have that mindset, when we think that same thing, think the same thing, have the same goal in mind, it will motivate us to obey Christ and to walk in his will, to see his work accomplished. Now, verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. So Paul now tells us how we are to be of one mind. He says you got to be of one mind. you gotta, you got to think the same thing. Here it is. got to have this love. And, and he's, he's, he says, here's how you should be of one mind. And he communicates it in two things that must not characterize us and one thing that must be attributed to Christians. First, he speaks uh, against these two negative attitudes that are a part of our sinful nature. The first, uh, first two that he speaks to are, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. So selfish ambition. It's okay to have ambition. It's okay to want things done but it shouldn't be selfish ambition. It shouldn't be completely inward focused. You should not be the primary, uh, your goals in life should not be the primary goals above uh, God's goals, you know, of what God is doing and what he's wanting to see accomplished. Your goals should not be ever exalted above Christ. When our ambition turns inward, it, it becomes idolatrous. It's okay to have ambition, it's got to have its place. Our ambition should be for God's glory. That's what he's told us. We should be uh, completely consumed with that, as Paul was. In Romans, Paul says that self-seeking, this selfish ambition here, is characteristic of those who don't obey the truth. That, that not, just, not just that, um, I mean, the, the, the charge that he makes there is so serious because it's essentially saying that the truth is that Jesus is Lord, and you're not living in a way that Jesus is Lord. You're not living in a way where you are committed to loving and serving him. Romans 2.8 says this, But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, so those things are, are uh, equated to each other, not obeying the truth and obeying unrighteousness, uh, they will... There will be wrath and fury. So selfish ambition, it characterizes those who are busy, who are active in their own interests. Not just busy, like period. Busy and active in their own interests. They're primarily seeking their own gain or their own advantage. These things aren't necessarily bad things. The things that, that we would seek for gain or for advantage, they're not necessarily like terrible things. 
but they're things that are superseding our passion for God's glory, our love for Christ, our commitment to the community of Christ. It, I, like, I read through verse 3 like a million times, and I was just like, I'm wrecked because like, I don't have a loophole to get out of this. Like, I cannot weasel my way or feel like, you know, or come to this and be like, eh, I'm doing all right. The charge that he's making here is that we should not be selfishly ambitious. We should not have vain conceit. We shouldn't be <clears throat> concerned primarily and busy and active in our own interests. We shouldn't be seeking our own gain or our own advantage. You know, uh, it's not the same context, but in uh, Matthew 6... Jesus kind of speaks to that as for, he's kind of speaking to those who are worrying. You know, they're, they're kind of co uh, concerned about like, well, I got to do this and I got to plan for the future. And, you know, I got to take care of all these things that are, you know, are, are coming up ahead. And, you know, I need to have a five-year plan and all, the, all this stuff. Uh, Jesus says in Matthew 6, he says, do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek all, after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows, what, uh, knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. I love how uh, Jesus puts it there. Because when we kind of talk about participation in the Spirit, when we talk about selfish ambition and, and the idea of not not um, being busy with our own interests. I mean, like, I think it's probably pretty important to be, like, interested in, like, I have needs, I need to eat, I need to pay my bills. Like, those are legitimate needs. But Jesus says, God knows what you need. Seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added to you. He's got, he, Jesus doesn't say, God knows what you would also want. Like, take care of your priorities first, the things that you have to do. You know, like, can't get out of those because those things are required. He, he, it's, it's crazy. Like, he, there's no loopholes, like, in this at all. But, like, okay, well, I got to go to work. I got to do this. You know, I got to go shopping, got to pay my bills. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Now, there are certainly priorities, and we'll kind of see how this works out in, uh, in the next little section here. So selfish ambition that, that is experienced when we have these self-interests, it drives us to conceit essentially. And conceit there, I love the translation of this. Conceit, when you think of someone who, who is conceited or oftentimes we would say prideful, essentially when we think of prideful is that they are, they are uh, placing their own glory upon themselves. But this word conceit here is translated empty glory. Someone who is conceited has empty glory. It's, there's, there's nothing to it. They have brought it, you know, they're placing it upon themselves. It's not deserved. They, it's just its own it's its own empty glory. So Paul says, don't do anything to obtain empty glory. Don't pursue, you know, the glory of uh, position, 
power, money, career, possessions. Avoid all of those things. Do not pursue this empty glory. Selfish ambition leads to an empty glory. One that you bring upon yourself. And when we do that, when we try to gain our own glory, when we are selfishly ambitious, when we are self-seeking, essentially what we're doing is we're attempting to take glory that belongs to God and saying, I'm going to invest my time in my own kingdom, my own, uh, my own life. I'm going to do what I want, and I'm going to take that away from you. Now, as long as we have these attitudes of selfish ambition, self-seeking, uh, trying to you know, see our own interests furthered, we're never going to experience unity of one mind. Because there's no unity in you know, everybody wanting their own thing individually. But here's what, here's what Paul tells us we should do. He shares the attitude that builds unity. Uh, and he goes on, he says, But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Here's how to build unity. Count others more significant than yourselves, in humility. So Paul gives this emphasis on humility, and it would just be completely confusing to uh, his first century Greek readers because humility was, was not a, a, you know, it wasn't a concept, it wasn't a, a characteristic that was valued in those communities. C- humility meant lowliness. It meant, it meant weakness, lack of freedom. It meant that you were, you were serving and you were subjected you know, to a master. Humility wasn't something that was, that was a, a prized value, a prized characteristic. The Greeks despised humility, and they wanted to uh, elevate, they, they, they prized those who would elevate themselves uh, above the weak, above those who were lowly. Now, contrast that with Paul here. Paul desires humility, because he believed that God exalted Jesus to be Lord above uh, humanity. He was humble, yet exalted by God. So, Paul, so Christ's humility didn't, uh, didn't start and end with his humility, but rather his, through his humility, he was exalted. That's what Paul's getting at here. There's a contrast that the Greek uh, first century reader wouldn't necessarily just get. And that's why he's going to kind of lay the groundwork in verses 6 through 11 for this type of humility. C.S. Lewis said that humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. When we think about humility, we often think like, okay, like that just means like I need to think about myself, that I'm like not as cool or as good at this task or idea that uh, that I thought I was like I you know don't act like I'm all big shot you know whether it be in you know sports or academics or you know anything it, it, it it's not just this attitude of like okay like I'll just play it cool like I'm you know I'm not as good as I thought I was Paul is telling us here that humility doesn't say, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's telling us, he only just doesn't just say that 
you know, you should think of yourself in a more terrible way, but it's simply that you are spending your attention and your affection on others. You're thinking of others more, not thinking of yourself less. You're, you're spending your time and energy on others. Now, we should pursue humility, not because pridefulness leads to destruction, but because Christ was humble, and we want to be like Christ. Paul saw the, the ultimate proof of this through the death and resurrection of Christ. His teaching on humility, we'll see in 6 through 11, is focused upon Christ's obedience. Now, the difference uh, kind of here is that when Christ you know, the difference kind of between the, the, the mindset there is that Christ was obedient to the will of the Father, okay? But the way that he'll communicate it, we'll talk about in, in a little bit, is that Christ was willingly, he wasn't, he wasn't that he was always weak, but that he made himself weak. It, it contrasts mightily with this, uh, you know, Greek mindset. And so Paul is calling us to place our attention and our affection and our energy upon others. So my mind naturally goes to the place of, okay, like, well, how often? Like, how far do I got to go? <laughs> you know, like, give me the line so I can meet your, your standard and then be like, I'm good. Like, I did what you told me to do. I want to be the rule keeper. I want to make sure that, you know, I can say, I did it. Don't be mad at me. I did it. But we don't get that. Jesus doesn't allow us to have that. Just when you think that you've, you've humbled yourself enough, just when you think you've given your life to the community enough, like, okay, like, I really spent a lot of time with them. I really did a lot of things for someone else. I really, you know, spent my time and energy on others. Realize when it talks about, about Jesus here in uh, verse 7 of chapter 2, he says, He made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, so he humbled himself. Being born in the likeness of men, humbled himself again. And being found in human form, he humbled himself, there it is again, by becoming obedient to the point of death, he was willing to die, even the death of the cross, the most shameful death. So when you think, do you think I've humbled myself enough? Jesus humbled himself to the death. So unless you're going to die, you have probably haven't done it, you know, in equality with Jesus. And he will empower you to do that because your, his spirit lives in you that enabled him to be obedient. You had that same spirit living within you who will enable you to get outside of our, our selfish mindsets, our selfish ambition and say, you know, I can't possibly go any further. I feel like I've done enough. And the Holy Spirit, you know, will be there to convict us and say, but Christ went to the death for you. To remind us of like, there's no reason that we should stop here. If we can serve someone else at our own expense, because that's what Christ did, we should do it. Now, We have the example in Christ's work. We'll talk about this a little bit more next week. Of what we must be able to give up and how far we should be willing to go. 
there's no limit. There's not really a point where we can be like, oh, you know. But the way that it works out in the community is when we're able to humble ourselves and to serve and love one another, if you're tired, the rest of the people in the community should not be self-interested and should also see that you have, you're tired, you need a break, you need to be served too. So you're not self-interested, but you let the community care for you. Let them be like, you should go home. Let it, you know, let's, let's take you and get you something. You need, you've been serving so hard. You've been working so hard. Don't be concerned with your own interests, but the Lord knows what you need. The community, when it's running in a loving and healthy way, we're going we're gonna to see those needs. Paul will kind of get to that um, in the end of verse 4 here. So he says that we ought to be humble. He explains what it looks like what this type of humility looks like. Uh, In verse 3, he says, But in humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. What do you think he means there? Count others as more significant than yourselves. He really means that. That's, That's what it is. He really means you should count others as more significant than yourselves. When? Sometimes, when you feel like it. Paul says all the time. All the time, others should be your priority. You shouldn't be self-interested. You shouldn't be selfishly ambitious. You should be looking to the community. And here in this context, Paul is speaking to unity in the church community. He's not just talking about like every single person in the world. People you do life with. People you're in this room with. Priorities. So, he says the way to practice humility is to value others above yourselves. It, it, when he says value others or, or count others, it means to focus your mind, to engage in an intellectual process, to think, consider, regard. He's not just saying like haphazardly, nonchalantly, like, oh yeah, think about others, you know, consider them more significant than yourselves. He's saying this should be your hobby, this should be your desire to like look at the needs of others, to say, okay, I'm thinking about these people, how can I love them and how can I serve them? What, your, your life should be committed to serving the body of Christ, serving others and meeting their needs. Instead of being preoccupied with, with uh, you know, your own agenda, instead of being self-interested and introspective and self-absorbed and egocentric, we want to be thinking outward. That's exactly the word that he uses there. Focus your mind outward on other people all the time. Paul says we are to count others as more important. He's addressing the way that our hearts work and our minds follow. Because we want to count ourselves most important. And then if we have some availability, like maybe we will, all right, I have like 1% of my week that I'm going to donate to helping somebody else, serving someone else. He's calling us to be freed from thinking about ourselves and to consider other people. Christ thought not of himself, but those he came to serve. Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And so when Paul says here, count others more significant than yourselves, he's saying that we should value the needs of the community more than we should value our own personal needs. There's going to be unity within the church, unity in the community of Christ 
when we consider others more significant than ourselves through the lens of Christ's humility, when he considered us, when he sacrificed, when he gave his time, his glory for us. Now, he's saying this to build each other up, to, er, to, to create unity in the church. I'd love to be cared for by like everybody else, and I'd love to spend my time caring for everybody else. It'd be awesome. You know, like, it'd just be like a one long week group hangout of like, all right, we're here and somebody needs to go. I mean, I've worked, I've thought this through in like so many ways of like how, the, how we're going to apply this and how could this could work out and like, you know, before I go into ramble, it, it'll get crazy. But the, the possibilities for like growing in relationship and love for one another are amazing through the finding unity in Christ and giving our time, energy, resources to one another. So he says, our, our needs should, sur- uh, the needs of others should surpass our own. We should put others in first place. We should give others, uh, you, know, first, you know, first dibs on anything that we have that could benefit them. We should respect other people, listen to other people, strengthen others, serve others, encourage others. It should be outward uh, facing. Verse 4, listen here. He says, look, e- let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So he's saying the way that we're going to accomplish this, the way that we're going to see this worked out, is if we reorient our minds to look not at our own interests only, but to the interests of others. When he says they're looking, he means paying careful attention. It means you're studying other people in the community, similar to what he said uh, just earlier about counting others, being preoccupied in your mind with others. He's saying here, you should be looking, you should be inspecting. Like, okay, how could I possibly serve others? On one, on, on a practical side, it is also helpful for people in the community to say, like, I have a need. I want to be served here. I, I need this met. I need to go here. I need a ride. I need to be picked up. I need someone to spend time with me because I need a friend. I'm, you know, my schedules have been crazy and I need someone to take me to the laundromat. Can you actually just do my laundry for me? Like all of those things, sometimes someone just needs to open their mouth and say those things, but we should also become students of one another saying like, you know what? This person seems like they've had a busy week. Let me reach out to them and see how I can serve them. Let me see how I can love on that person and and encourage them as Christ has loved me. So he says that we should pay careful attention to one another. And it really does mean this whole text, which is like the scariest as I was saying, it's one of the scariest texts that I've like come to because it's like, okay, I don't want to be a hearer only with this. I want to be a doer. It really does mean that we should reprioritize our lives so that we give the largest share of attention to others. It doesn't mean that we also neglect you know, ourselves, our personal devotion, uh, things that, that we need to do, but it doesn't mean that every block of time that you have in your day belongs to you. It means that our attention should be reprioritized towards the community. The way that he communicates this in laying the foundation, I mean, if you, by the end of this first section of chapter two, there's going to be no way to get out of any of this because when Paul starts speaking about how Jesus loved us, it's like, okay, all the loopholes, anything that you could possibly think of will be closed. So we want to apply this. We want to ask the Lord to help us with this, to, 
to get to the place where we are able to love and serve one another. And it doesn't necessarily also mean that it has to be in a place where, you know, like, all right, we're going to grow into this. Like, we want to be intentional. We're an intentional church. We try to, like, read what's in Scripture and say, like, okay, how are we going to do it? How are we going to apply it? It's going to be difficult. Um, We need the Lord to help us. But it, it starts with what Paul, you know, was speaking of there, of being of the same mind, having that same goal. And it starts with us being changed and transformed by the gospel of Christ, knowing that Christ has saved us. And because he saved us, now we are renewing our minds. It's being changed from being selfish and and self-seeking to being outwardly focused to loving as Christ loved. And so we want to spend some time reflecting upon that now and uh, reflecting upon Christ's work, his, his death upon the cross, and his uh, resurrection for our justification, so that it would launch us into having our minds filled with the, the gospel, so that way when we talk to one another and love and serve one another, we're able to do it out of the motivation of having that goal of advancing the gospel, of knowing Jesus together, enjoying Jesus together. We want to enjoy Jesus together, and then we want to serve each other, and you know, in, in the context of enjoying Jesus together. So let's pray and ask the Lord to help us with like this gigantic thing. Lord, we're thankful for um, our time this morning. We're thankful for, uh, for the Apostle Paul that you've given uh, us these words that communicate your heart about how we're to love each other in community. We want to love and serve each other well, just as you have loved us. Or we want to um, love out of the motivation of knowing Jesus personally, that you've saved us. And so, Lord, as we spend these next couple uh, minutes in worship and responding to who you are, Lord, we pray that you would um, draw us, Lord, not into um, the task of loving one another and trying to figure out how we're going to... um, share our lives and give, you know, our attention to others. Lord, but now we want to know you. We want to respond to you. And so remind us of, of that, those moments, Lord, um, where we've cried out to you for help and you have answered us. Remind us of that moment where you saved us, Lord, where, we, where we went from death to life. We want to celebrate those things, Lord. We want to, we want to see Christ contrasted uh, with uh, just the emptiness of the world. We want to see the beauty of Jesus. We want to respond to Christ as we worship. We love you. Amen.